0: Welcome to the Grace Long Beach Podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Ephesians 3.14-21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according... And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to be him in the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Fellow kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated.
1: I'm a little biased, but I think she's the best scripture reader. <laughs> That's more applause than I'm probably going to get. So. Um, Welcome back. Here we are again. If you've been with us uh, the last few months, we've been working through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Daniel's been taking us through that book. Last week, we were talking about the unbelievability of the good news of Jesus Uh, that the good news is unbelievably real, it's unbelievably good, it's unbelievably grace filled. We've been reconciled with God the Father. And because we've been reconciled through Jesus to God, we now have a new identity. Our fundamental identity is that we are beloved children of the Father. And that gives us a new basis to relate to one another. Not only are we reconciled to God, but we have a new basis to be reconciled to one another. We're we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, But as we talked about last week that can all be easier said than done. So we prayed, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we we want to live into that reality that we're reconciled with you and reconciled to one another. Help us to trust you enough to do that. And so what what might God do to help us? If he was going to take us up on that prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, what might he do? How might he help us? Well, this is what Paul is going to pray for the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. He's going to pray that God will help them live into this new covenant reality, this reconciled relationship. But we've got to be really careful with this prayer because it's loaded. There's a lot in it, and we're liable to miss what Paul is saying. So why don't we pray to ask God to help us understand Paul's prayer. Pray with me. Lord, um, we're here today again, and we come, Lord, uh, because we believe in you, uh, we need you, and we believe by gathering together as your people, uh, submitting to your word, focusing on you and one another, uh, that you work through that, Father. So I pray this morning by your spirit you would, you would speak to each one of us, that you would apply your truth to our lives, help us to be open to you in your name. Uh, Both Daniel and I have referenced Eugene Peterson a few times uh, in the last few uh, sermons, and there's lots of reasons to reference Eugene Peterson. Uh, But one reason is because he wrote a book called Practice Resurrection, and it's a Reflection on the book of Ephesians. Uh, But Eugene Peterson is someone to reference uh, really any time. I'm about ready to reference him. That's why I'm leading up to this. Uh, If you don't know Eugene, he was a a pastor for many, many years, uh, ended his career as a professor at Regent uh, College in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, He's probably most well-known for his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. But after Eugene retired, he and his wife Jan moved back to uh, the hometown where Eugene grew up in, in Montana, and they bought a home overlooking this lake. And and in their retirement years, um, uh, one of their practices was they would go out on the deck and they would read stories to one another. And Eugene tells a story of uh, sitting on the deck and his wife Jan was reading to him the Winnie the Pooh stories. And as he was sitting there listening to the Winnie the Pooh story, in fact, he was listening to uh, the story... Uh, entitled uh, Expedition to the North Pole. That's what Winnie the Pooh calls it. It's an expotition to the North Pole. If you don't remember the story, uh, Christopher Robin has uh, decided that they're going to go on an expedition to the North Pole. The problem is we soon find out Christopher Robin doesn't know what the North Pole is. So he takes Rabbit aside at some point as they're on this journey. and He says, Rabbit, um, do you know what the North Pole is? And Rabbit says, Well, I, I think it uh, must be a pole. And uh, and Christopher Robin says, Yes, yes, I was thinking that too. And it must be stuck in the ground. And Christopher Robin said, Yes, yes, a pole stuck in the ground. So I guess we're looking for a pole. That's my rabbit voice. I guess we're looking for a pole stuck in the ground. And Christopher Robin says, Must be it. So they continue on their expedition. And as they're going along, uh, Rue. The, the baby kangaroo falls in a creek, and he's enjoying himself. But the rest of the animals and Christopher Robin are concerned about Roo. So Winnie the Pooh finds a long stick, and he places it across the, the 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 river. And when Kanga or when Roo comes up to it, he grabs onto the stick and he climbs out of the river. And we pick the story up there. Uh, they're celebrating that Roo uh, has gotten out, and. Christopher Robin turns to Pooh and he says, Pooh, where did you find that pole? Pooh looked at the pole in his hands. I just found it, he said. That's my Winnie the Pooh voice. I I just found it. I thought it ought to be useful. I just picked it up. Pooh, said Christopher Robin solemnly. The expedition is over. You have found the North Pole. Oh," said Pooh. And so it goes on a little bit more, but eventually they stick the pole in the ground. Christopher Robin tied a message onto it that said, North Pole, discovered by Pooh. Pooh found it. And then they all went home again. And Eugene says, as he was listening to this story, that he thought of the church. He thought of us. He thought of Christians who are often on an expedition to find true Christian spirituality, the authentic Christian life, real Christian living. And and, and we're on this search for something. We, We know something's not quite right. And so someone finds something. They say, ah, here it is. I found it. We need to be in the Bible. We need to stay in the Word. We need to be Bible people. And we look at that and we say, there it is. That must be it, true Christian spirituality. And we rally around that pole for a while until eventually we wander away. And then someone else comes along and says, no, 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 now I found it. True Christian spirituality, it's, it's obedience. Not only hearers of the word, we need to be doers of the word. We need to get active people, we need to get involved. I found it, true Christian spirituality. Sure looks like it. And so we rally around it and we try to live that way for a while, but eventually we wander off. Someone else comes up and says, no, 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 I found it this time. It's community. That's what we really need. It's it's the body of Christ. It's body life. This is true Christian spirituality. No, 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 I've got it now. It's, it's being on mission. It's outreach. That's what it's all about. If we could just do that. See, what is the heart of the Christian life, of course obedience is a part of it. Of course being in the word is a part of it. Of course outreach and mission is a part of it. What was the other thing I said? Oh, of course body life is a part of it. (laughs) But all of these things, what are these things, how are they unified? What is it that pulls them together? Well, that's what Paul is going to pray for the church of Ephesus. If you look at verse 14, if you have your Bible, uh, open it up to, in the pew Bibles or the, what do we call those? Seat Bibles. Uh, it's page 977. Uh, but if you have uh, some other Bible, uh, I don't know what page it's on. Uh, but it's Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And we notice those words there. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees. Well, for what reason? Well, for everything he's just said, because of who we are in Christ, because we are reconciled to the Father, because we are reconciled to one another, for that reason, here's my prayer for you, Christians, Paul's saying, here is my prayer. Here's what I'm going to pray for. I'm going to pray that you obey. No, he doesn't pray for that. I'm going to pray that you stay in the scriptures. No, that's not his prayer. I'm going to pray that you take this message and go into all the world. No, that's not his prayer. I'm going to pray that you live it out in the body of Christ. That's not his prayer. We've got to pay attention to what he prays for. This is what Paul thinks is going to help. This is at the core. So he says he bows his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, and here's, here it is, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Now, we just have to stop there with that phrase, because if we don't get that phrase right, we won't get the rest of it right. Because really what he does is he goes on to elaborate and unpack that phrase. Strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. Now, one thing we need to notice about this is, is the Ephesians are already saved. The, the, he's not praying that the Holy Spirit would indwell them. They're already indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He's already referred to them as saints. This isn't a salvation prayer. He's not praying for their salvation. He's praying for their sanctification, for their ongoing strengthening by the Spirit. There's an ongoing strengthening, empowering by the Spirit in our inner being. So the second thing we have to take seriously here is the psychological realism of Paul's prayer. The psychological realism that that the Spirit of God is really indwelling us. He's really doing something. It has effects. It's like strength. It's like power. Um, maybe we would just think this kind of experiential dimension of the Christian life is just Paul getting a little too excited, if it wasn't that we see this over and over again. Here's Jesus. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, a paraclete, to be with you forever, Even the Spirit of truth, he dwells with you and will be in you. Or here's Jesus himself, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good, for God was with him. Paul himself says, for this I toil, struggling with all Christ's energy, energy, power, strength that he powerfully works within me. Paul elsewhere says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Another place he says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. That that passage I think is is one to really reflect on. Because Jesus wasn't there, not physically. But Paul's experience was, is the Lord stood by him and that strengthened him. This is relational presence Paul says Els- elsewhere, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He says to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. This, this psychological realism that the Spirit of God is actually having effects on us, changing the way we experience life. Now, there's a couple ways this could go wrong. Our understanding of it could go wrong. I think one way is by taking that word power and thinking that what Paul must be praying for is some sort of extraordinary manifestation of the Spirit, some sort of miraculous power that the Spirit of God would come and and just do miraculous things. But that's actually not how Paul talks about it. It's not that that kind of manifestation of the Spirit isn't possible. But here, Paul's not talking about the extraordinary manifestation of the Spirit. He's talking about a very ordinary manifestation of the Spirit. Because he goes on to say in the next phrase, that Sienna read so well, in the next phrase, he goes on to say, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you be strengthened with power by the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That's not a second thing. That just is what it is for the Spirit to strengthen us. The Spirit mediates the presence of Christ to our hearts, to our inner being. And so Christ is dwelling in our hearts by trust. We are trusting him more and more. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We are trusting him more and more that he's actually with us. That by his spirit, that's strengthening us, Jesus is present. So it's not some sort of extraordinary manifestation. It's a very personal manifestation. It's a person. His name's Jesus. And he's with us by the spirit all the time. Now, the problem here is, is if we... Uh, oh, I got a good quote. Hang on, I got a good quote. Thank you. So, can you read that? I can't read it. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a Peter O'Brien, a commentator on Ephesians. Uh, his commentary is amazing. Um, I put this stuff up here because I want you to know I'm not making it up. I'm kind of serious about that. Uh, the Christian tradition is a knowledge tradition. There's been a lot of people who have been reflecting on these things for over 2,000 years. So when we encounter a text like this, we don't encounter it for the first time. We encounter it within a long tradition. And our commentators, like Peter O'Brien, are some of the people who, who 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 write well about that tradition of how the church has reflected on this passage. So here's what O'Brien says. He's talking about this passage. Christ's indwelling is not something additional to the strengthening. To be empowered by the Spirit in the inner person means that Christ himself dwells in their hearts. At first sight, it seems strange for Paul to pray that Christ may dwell in the hearts of believers. Did he not already live within them? In answer, it is noted that the focus of this request is not on the initial indwelling of Christ, that's salvation, but on his continual presence. This indwelling is through faith, that is, as they trust him, he makes their hearts his home. Now, his heart's their home. That's a little cheesy. I think he could have chosen some better words there. But you get the point. He makes their hearts his home. The implication of the apostles' prayer then is the more the Spirit empowers their lives, the greater will be their transformation into the likeness of Christ. This is a psychological reality. It's a person. But there's another way this can go wrong. Uh, We might... If, if the first problem was, uh, the, the over, sense, uh, sense, sense, uh, sens, sens, how do you say this? The over, uh, sensalization? No, that's not the word Thank you. Over sensationalism. Uh, this is maybe an over familiarization with Jesus. You know, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus is my buddy. He kind of hangs with me or something like that. And by the way, if Jesus is our homeboy, then Mary must be our homegirl, I guess. So I just, when you search for these images, you find lots of other things, and I thought that one was worthwhile putting up there. But, um, but this is to overly familiarize ourselves that that Jesus is somehow always with me, and he's like a presence that I'm always feeling. And of course, if you all are all always feeling Jesus's presence, uh, wonderful. Just keep going. That's great. But for a lot of us, I think if we if we take this indwelling presence of Jesus by his spirit that strengthens us as some sort of felt presence, we'll think, well, it's not really happening because I don't feel that. And this is why Paul goes on to tell us that it's not always going to feel like someone's right there. It might feel like that sometimes. But what he goes on to say in the next phrase, we'll keep keep Mary up there for a second. What he goes on to say in the next phrase, look back at the text, so that, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, this is just another elaboration of what's going on here, that you being rooted and grounded in agape, God's love. See, the Spirit is indwelling us, strengthening us with power in our inner being, which just is Jesus indwelling us by trusting him, which is to be rooted and grounded in God's love. That's just what Jesus and the Spirit are doing. Paul says in Romans five five that the Spirit of God has poured the love of God, the agape of God, abroad in our hearts. He's poured the love of God abroad in our hearts. The Spirit is loving us. Paul says the Spirit's crying out in our hearts, Abba Father, you are a beloved child of God. This is a reality, and it's. And, and here Paul uses language of rooted and grounded. He uses language of agriculture, rooted, and architecture, grounded. We, we are rooted like a plant is rooted in soil, but our soil is God's love by his Spirit through Jesus. We're grounded like a building is founded on rock, but our rock is Jesus, and he's with us, and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so it's not our homeboy or our homegirl. It's a person, and he loves us. See, it's an interesting thing about love. Think of human love for a a minute. Um, You can be experiencing the love of your family and friends without being consciously aware of your family and friends. Sometimes we say, uh, I carried your love with me. Or I internalized your love. You can go through your entire day and never think about your loved ones, but still carry their love with you. And it has a psychological effect. We know it because when we're feeling particularly unloved by our friends and family, we oftentimes feel lonely and isolated and abandoned and betrayed, and we feel drained. And it saps the life from us. Because if we're not carrying the love of others with us, we don't feel Empowered, So it shouldn't surprise us that being rooted and grounded in love is strengthening. It's empowering. We experience that with one another. And we experience that in spades with God, the God of love, the God who is love. But Paul's going to tell us something else about this love. He goes on to say in verse 18... His prayer continues that we would have the strength, that the Ephesians would have the strength to comprehend, to understand with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. See, Paul wants the Ephesians to understand, and God wants us to understand that this love that we're rooted and grounded in Because Jesus is always with us by the Spirit. This love is limitless. It's unlimited. there's, There's more to it than you'll ever know. You know, we sing that song, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Flowing like a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love. This limitless, unlimited love. This agape, never-ending, never-stopping love. And if we've forgotten... Oh, I've got another good quote. Hang on. Quote time. I'm going to read it up here. Here's uh, O'Brien again. He owes me, if you guys go out and buy his commentary, he owes me for this, uh, all, this, uh, all the <laughs> plugs here. He says, this petition, talking about this prayer, it's one long petition. This petition is remarkable, for although the apostle has said much in chapters 1 through 3 about his readers being in Christ, he assumes in this prayer that they do not adequately appreciate Christ's love. This is not a petition that they may love Christ more, however important this might be, rather that they may understand Christ's love for them. Further, their grasping this cannot be simply a mental exercise. Clearly, it is personal knowledge, and although it undoubtedly includes insight into the significance of God's love and the plan of redemption, it cannot be reduced simply to intellectual reflection. Paul wants them to be powered so as to, to, empowered so as to grasp the dimensions of that love in their own experience. See, what's interesting about this part of Paul's prayer is the Ephesians already know that God loves them. If you had given them a quiz, true or false, God loves you, they would have said true, so Paul's not telling them anything new here. He's not saying, hey, and by the way, don't forget God loves you. He's saying, you don't really get it. There's so much more to God's love than you realize. It's an experiential reality that you're, you, you should be swimming in. There's a breadth to it and a length and a depth. You should take a dive into it, Ephesian Christians. There's a lot more. And it's in fact, it's a love he prays that they would know the love that surpasses knowledge. That, now, that could almost be a contradiction. Knowledge of something that surpasses knowledge. But really, it's the, what he's saying there is that there's more than you'll ever know. As much as you know the love of God, there's more. There's more of it. It's bigger. Underneath me, all around me, is the current. And then if we've forgotten here... That this is all supposed to be relational and personal and psychological. Paul ends this prayer with this final stanza. It's really the final phrase, again, culminates the whole thing. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now, I didn't know God came in ounces. Filled up with all the fullness of God? See, this is just another way of saying the same thing that he said over and over and over again in this prayer. The strengthening, empowering presence of the Spirit in their inner being that is Christ dwelling in them by trust that is to be rooted and grounded in an unlimited love is the fullness of God because God is love. God is love. And as we, he's praying for the Ephesians, that they would they would open, they would receive more and more of this love. And as they receive more and more, they receive more and more of God. And that shouldn't, again, be weird. We shouldn't be surprised to find gas in our gas tank or to find air in our lungs or blood in our veins. They were made for those things, and we were made for the fullness of God. That's what we were designed for. This isn't some sort of bizarre thing. This is some sort of add-on. Human persons were made to be rooted and grounded in agape. That's how we were designed. And to live without it is to try to drive your car without gas in the gas tank, or try to breathe without breath air in your lungs. Right? Um. Thank you, Brother John. There's something else I was going to say there, but I forgot it. But, that's, but that, that, that was a good thing to say. Uh. So, Paul's going to close this prayer by praying for the fullness of God. Oh, I remember what it was. There's only one other person that we see this phrase, the fullness of God. It's in Colossians, referring to Christ. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, see, Jesus was the one who lived life in the fullness of that agape love. And it allowed him to be the kind of person he was. And Paul is praying for that for the Ephesian Christians. So we have that and we hear that prayer. Paul didn't pray for obedience. He didn't pray that we'd remain in the Scriptures. He didn't pray for mission. He didn't pray for body life. He prayed for the strengthening, empowering presence of the Spirit. But now we have to say, well, how do we get that? I mean, it's happening to some degree, but it looks like there's a whole lot more of it that could be happening. There's a whole lot more of that fullness of God's love. And you might think, well, do we just wait around for the prayer to kick in? Well, waiting is part of it, I think. But not passive waiting, a kind of watchful waiting. Kind of noticing what God is up to. And again, I want to leave us with um, a practice. Actually, I want to leave us with three practices. How do we walk in such a way that we begin to engage this strengthening, empowering presence of the Spirit. The first thing I want to recommend to us is that we practice receiving the love of human others. That one way to practice receiving God's love more is to practice receiving human love more. Uh, In in John's letter, it says that... um, If you can't love your brother whom you can see, how can you love God whom you can't see? And I think there's a similar principle there. If I can't receive love from my brothers and sisters whom I can see, how can I receive love from God whom I can see? It's probably going to be a little more tricky with him if I can't do it very well here. So one of the practices we can engage in with one another is practicing receiving one another's love, one another's care. Because as I receive your love, as you receive my love, it makes God's love more believable. And so one of the practices we can engage in is to identify who are the people in your life who love and care for you. And what are you doing to avail yourself to receive their love. Here's a second practice, uh, the practice of solitude. So the first practice was a practice of community. But here's a practice to commune with God, to go into solitude. Solitude is a very important practice in the Christian life because uh, unless you're an extreme introvert, um, to go off and be by yourself is something most of us would only do if we actually believed there was someone with us when we go off to be by ourselves. So when we go into solitude, it's really saying to God, "Okay, Lord, here I am. It's me and you." And in solitude, we can draw near to the love of God. I, I once was at a conference where someone was up talking about these sorts of things about God's presence, and 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 there was a question and answer time, and a gentleman stood up and he said, "I've been a Christian for thirty five years, and I've never experienced God." I don't know what you're talking about. What can I do to experience God? And I'll never forget what the speaker said. He asked the man, he said, "Um, do you work full-time? And the man said, yes, I do. And he said, do you have vacation time? And the man said, yeah, I I get two weeks a year plus, you know, holidays. And then the the speaker said, "Um, okay, well, your next two-week vacation, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take those two weeks And go off and be by yourself. Find some place where you can be alone for two weeks. Preferably some place where you have access to nature. And on the first day of those two weeks, say to God, God, why haven't I ever experienced you? And then wait. And that was all the person said. And the man kind of looked at him quizzically and nodded his head and shrugged his shoulders and sat down. And I thought, wow, really? That's what he's going to say? Take your vacation time and go into solitude and ask God to reveal himself and then wait? And I thought, I don't know if that's a very good intervention or not, but my second thought was, <laughs> Chelsea liked that one. My second thought was, I bet that man won't do it. Because I don't think I'd do it. And maybe that was the intervention. Do I want God badly enough that I would? Give up two weeks of my vacation time to experience Him. I've got places to go, things to see, and I hope God can find a way to come alongside. But really, would it really call for that kind of intentionality with the Lord? When was the last time you went to someone, a brother and sister in Christ, and said, You know, I'm planning to spend most of this Saturday alone with the Lord? Any recommendations on how I could spend that time? I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on any of us. It's been a long time since I've done that. But I think we need to maybe take 20 minutes of solitude and ask ourselves, why don't we do that if it's not your practice? And we have an opportunity. Mike Mathias, is Mike here? Mike, Mike, Mike? Oh, oh, he's playing hooky. Mike Mathias, this Saturday, one of our elders, is sponsoring a solitude day this coming Saturday. And so you could practice that. Here's the third and final practice, and then we'll close. And it's a practice that comes right from this text. Paul begins his prayer for, by saying, For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. He gets down on his knees. And this is a practice that has to do with our bodies and our posture. Um, To actually get down on our knees. When we kneel, we're we're saying something. It's not to get other people's attention. It's not to get God's attention. Really kneeling in other postures, it's a way to get our attention. It's a way to lead with the body, to put our bodies in a posture that we want to grow into more internally. And so Paul kneels when he prays this prayer. It's a posture of openness. well, usually when we kneel, we're hoping that whoever we're kneeling before uh, will, 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 will do what we want them to do. It's a posture of saying, please, I'm ready. I accept. And so the third practice I'd like to recommend to you is a bodily posture of kneeling. Or if your knees don't kneel very well, uh, hands out, palms up is a good substitute. So Paul ends uh, this passage with a very powerful benediction, and I want to pray that benediction over us. And after I pray it, there's going to be some people, um, as is our custom, on the sides. And if you would like to pray with someone, maybe on your knees, again, not to show anyone how spiritual you are, but as a way to tell yourself, oh God, I need you. But if you want to go to one of those people or go to someone else in this room who you would like prayer from or to pray with, uh, you can take that time to do so. But let me close us with this benediction, which is the final benediction of Paul's prayer. Pray with me. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or can even imagine according to the power, the strengthening empowerment at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.